thank you all again uh, for being here and for uh, supporting the women's conference. It was really something, and so uh, uh, we're grateful, grateful for that. Um, let me get my computer working. Okay. Uh, a couple of the things that, that I wanted to mention that uh, uh, in, a, in way of announcements is we are really are trying to encourage everyone uh, to get a partner, somebody, maybe your spouse or uh, kids, and, and sign up for regular uh, communion prep. We need more uh, teams to do communion prep, and we will train you and show you how to prep for communion uh, and set the table. Uh, this is a, a major portion of our worship service is celebrating the Holy Communion each week. And so if you're willing to do that, please see Dawson or myself and we'll get you signed up. It's not hard to do, uh, but you do have to come a little bit early uh, on Sunday morning to, to get it all done. We also need people to help serve Holy Communion. Uh, we'd love for uh, men, women, even some of our young people to uh, be the, the quartet that we use up here in the front to serve Holy Communion. So if you'd like to do that once in a while, uh, again, see uh, Dawson or myself. Now, if you're a member of Christ the King, uh, we expect you to come to the congregational meeting. That's an obligation. It's just once a year. Uh, but we have to have a quorum. We have to have enough people to, to make that quorum. Uh, it's 25% of our, our uh congregate members, and so, you know, we need at least 25, 30 people here to make the quorum. Uh, plus, you're going to get a lot of interesting information of how we're going to be coming out of COVID, what we want to do in the future, how we uh, hope that we can go forward in this new, this is a whole new era, so we're, we're very excited. I think there are opportunities that uh, uh, we want to avail ourselves of, so uh, please join us next Sunday. Uh, for that, and we won't be a long meeting. Uh, we're required by in our our book of church order that we manage our denomination with to have one meeting a year at least. We can have more, but we got to have one at least. So, uh, do join us for that. Part of what we're talking about in uh, the sermons and also in the life of the church is this whole idea of community building. And what we're talking about is how do we reach outside. Uh, the walls of our church into our wider community. Of course, this neighborhood, which is big and growing and lots of people from lots of different places. Uh, then we're, we also want to partner with other churches and with our sister church on the east side, Las Tierras, uh, to reach the wider community of El Paso. And then beyond that, we want to partner with our denomination and our presbytery and some of the missionaries that we support uh, to reach the wider world, the Southwest, and even beyond that. So a community building is important. If a church does not build community both inside the church and outside the church, it dies. It just dies. It takes time and uh, maybe some years, and you'll see the congregation slowly become grayer and grayer <laughs> and, and weaker and weaker, and, you know, the pastor dies, and, you know, there's all that stuff. So... Uh, I'll try not to die in the next few minutes, but uh, so we, we, we need to take this serious, reaching out into our community, but there are challenges to community building, and we talked about one of those a few weeks ago, syncretism, and that's just getting all, all attached to the, the world, the culture around us. 
At the same time, we can't go and hunker and bunker down in, you know, a a silo somewhere and pretend that we're going to just escape the world. You will not escape the world. The world will come and get you in your bunker or in your cave like the ascetics did. They they hid in caves and they lived on a peak of a mountain and just sat up there and said um all day long. Of course, they used a Christian um. They didn't use the other um. But they were found out. See, their sins will find you out. And if the testimony of the ascetics is anything, is it didn't work because lust was the same, greed was the same, envy was the same, all the same. They just did it alone instead of in community. So we're not advocating for hunkering and bunkering. We're also not saying that you should just become entirely comfortable with our culture. Our culture is going sideways in a lot of ways. But that's been typical since the Garden of Eden. So this is no different. We're on same kinds of trajectories. And those of you that um, you know, think, well, if we could just get back to the good old days, uh, maybe they were good for you, but they're not good for everybody, those old days. So you've got to remember, we live in a certain context and we need to be very understanding of community. One of the challenges I said last week, and I think this may be the biggest challenge that Christians have, and that's learning to walk in this world in a redemptive way. In other words, Jesus said, if you are cursed, you return the curse with a blessing. If you're slapped on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. You act in a way that is redemptive to the world. And this has always been a challenge for church people, for Christians. Well, am I supposed to just stand there and take a beating? Am I supposed to just let people abuse me? Am I supposed to do this and that? And what that is, is just laziness. It's just lazy thinking. It's not being willing to look down into the text and the way Jesus operated and the way He commanded us to operate. It's just lazy and saying, well, I'm not going to take a beating. I have rights. Or, you know, this person... uh, messed up my car and I want to go, you know, take care of that. All of those things are, are reasonable. But there is a time and a place in the life of every Christian when you have an opportunity to act like your Savior and respond redemptively. And we talked about that last week with this passage in First Peter. Today I'm going to read the second part of this passage, so if you have your Bible, you can look at it, and I did print the right one this week, uh, thankfully. Uh, so chapter 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 10, and Peter is quoting Psalm 34, and now hear the word of God. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. This is going to be a challenge, living in community and responding redemptively both to the people in the church your brothers and sisters in the church, as well as people out in the community. One of the greatest challenges is to live this way. And so I'm putting it out there. Next week we'll have our final bit of this and I'll I'll kind of wrap things up. What does it mean to live redemptively? Well, here's what Karen Jobes, a wonderful theologian, said in her commentary on 1 Peter. It's not responding in kind to insults, slander, evil intents. It's having the inner fortitude to break the cycle of evil that spirals ever downward. It's action that goes against the grain of what would normally be expected. It's returning a blessing for a curse. It may be possible, she says, to clench our teeth and do something good for someone who has insulted us and hurt us, all the while bearing ill will towards them in our hearts. The command of 3.9, which we read last week, calls us not to a legalistic and begrudging compliance but to a confidence in the transforming power of the new birth, your identity in Christ. Has He truly changed you? doesn't mean you won't struggle with this. Listen, that's why we're talking about it. You will struggle. Acting redemptively towards someone is going to cost you. And we're going to talk about what Jesus... We talked about it last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to the audio, I think. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll sum it up today. Miroslav Volf wrote a, a fantastic piece. My older son, Justin, uh, when he was in seminary, he wrote a term paper on this, and he sent it to me. And Miroslav Volf is uh, uh, from the, the Balkan area and saw all the horrific war crimes that were uh, done over there. And he wrote this, uh, several pieces that had to do with this. This one is called The Soft Difference talking about the need for authentic, powerful Christianity to emerge, not the caricature that you see on television, uh, particularly in the United States. That is not legitimate. Many of the things you see are false teachers, heretics, charlatans. And we warn you about those, because they tell you, you know, you can have health and wealth and political power, and we need to take over the world and all of that. And John Calvin said, good luck. Good luck with that. So hear what Miroslav Volf says. Fantastic piece. I just pulled this out of the one, one part. The command to return blessing and good for insult and evil is truly a call to a transformational character. 
It is the character of a people, listen to this, who refuse to allow their adversaries to define them, but who seek their definition in Christ, in Him. And again, not going to be easy. But these redemptive response, here's what they will do. They will assault and deconstruct your self-centeredness, your self-protection, your pride, your hubris. If you do it and you trust the Lord in the transforming power of the new birth, He will take that faith that you have put in His Word and He will tear down those strongholds that have been built up in us all our lives to protect, not to be hurt, to make sure nobody hurts us. We're afraid of everything, but we put on a, we put on a, a bold face. We talk big. We talk, uh, you know, like we really can protect ourselves. And when we can't, we know we're insecure. You name it. It will assault that, tear it down, and it will replace it with a stronger identity in Jesus. And we'll see in a moment where that comes from. Secondly, acting redemptively takes the life of your Savior and it begins tracing onto your life His uh, attitude towards the world, a broken world which He came into to save and to recover. Not by strength. He could have called His army down and they, you know, everything would have been done in about two seconds. Instead, He comes in weakness. He's born in a trough. He, he has nothing. He's no money. He's, he's poor all His life. And eventually crucified naked after being tortured by Romans and betrayed by His own people. The redemptive response will start tracing that onto your life. Imagine that. Who doesn't want that? If you're a Christian, I know that we all hunger for it. And we just wonder, how am I going to get this? The redemptive response is going to be seen by everyone around you as weakness. The Greco-Roman world, they despised weakness. You were supposed to be macho and strong and powerful and move with, you know, even if you faked it and trample people and command their respect and, you know, all of that that the world tells us. John Wayne Okay, this is the virtue that uh, defined our Savior. So if you're a Christian, come, you're going to have to wrestle with that and get over your power hungry and greed and all that. Listen, I've had to do it. Dawson's had to do it. He more than me. Uh, but <laughs> and we won't even tell you about Ugo. He's over there. That's scary. No, what we're saying is it's going to be a challenge and every one of us will have to face that and start coming to grips with are we going to are we going to live like we mean it? Are we going to let the culture around define us? And then say, oh, that Christianity in America is just another lobby group with their little cardboard signs you know, complaining about something. Or are we going to really and truly move out into our community where people may actually start hating us and do it redemptively? And this is a challenge. This is, I think, the challenge of the 21st century for the American church. 
throwing off the trappings of power and money and all that other stuff, and you're not going to see everybody do it, but I hope Christ the King will do it. Will you do it? Yeah, three of you will do it? Who wants to do it with me? Hooray! All right, let's throw off the trappings of, of power. Let's embrace our weakness and go out into the world in a redemptive response. Here's what Peter does. Look at verse 13. He asks a provocative question, a rhetorical question. Once you read it, you know the answer. Listen to how he does this. He's, he's brilliant, this fisherman. Amazing. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you? You see, if you have an eternal perspective, if you really and truly believe that you're going to live 70 or 80 or maybe 20, I don't know how many years you're going to live. But when you die, your eyes are going to close and another set of eyes are going to open and you're going to be in eternity. Now, if you're a Christian, that's bedrock. That's foundational. That your life is not, it does not end, it continues. And Jesus, and, and Jesus pointed this out, and Peter is just restating what Jesus said over and over again. Who is there to harm you? What are we afraid of? What keeps us up at night? Who's elected president? Uh, what the stock market is doing? Where our kids are? Where, you know, we can go on and on. What are we afraid of? He's not, asking us for, for, he's not asking us to be naive and stupid and just walk around like, you know, a dingbat. He's asking us to look with wisdom and think deeply, deeply. What is there to harm you? You are going to die. Somehow, some way, you will die. And he asks this powerful, what is there to harm you? You see, in the normal course of life, what Peter is saying, just in your normal course of life, everyone, all people, doesn't matter where you go, you could go to the worst place in the Middle East, or you could go to the worst place down in the, in the uh, Northern Triangle, down in Central America. You could go to any place. Most people, they appreciate a person who does good. You know, it's not the zombie apocalypse out there, folks. There are bad actors, there are bad people, yes, but not everyone is a zombie, for goodness sakes. Most people are looking for, to live in peace. But the peace that is being offered to them is paltry. And the church has almost lost its mind. We should be offering them the peace of Christ. Who is there to harm you? Really, if we, if we took that message, you know, what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of this person or that thing or whatever you no religion has answers to that but Christianity only Christianity can address that because we have a savior who is the master of life and death how do you know that because he rose from the dead not in a different body in the same body one for one he went in and he came out that is foundational. This is Christianity 101, folks. And Peter's saying, who's there to harm you? It, ironically, I mean, he, would, you know, he was afraid of the campfire he was sitting at. And the little gal that came out and said, ah, oh, you're a Galilean. No, I'm not. And then he curses, you know. This is a man who was afraid. And here he is writing us saying, who is there to harm you? Generally, other people, community, wide and near, 
people in the church, people outside, they appreciate when others do good. They're not, you know, they're not just waiting to do bad to a good person, someone who's zealous. They like people that work hard, that are kind, that are generous, that are honest, that have integrity. Your neighbors, most of them, unless you have a really, you know, wacky neighbor, they will appreciate those very ordinary, down-to-earth virtues. So what Peter's saying is, who's there to harm you? The answer, nobody. Therefore, since there's nobody to harm you, there's no reason for you to restrain whatsoever living in and for the world. You don't have to be afraid. You can go ahead and risk. And I'm risking. That's just my personality. I don't like taking risks. I'm, I'm scared all the time. Uh, you know, I, I'm insecure. I've said this for 18 years at this church. I don't make any bones about it because that's me. But I'll bet you're like me. And we worry and we fret. And what, you know, what are people going to think? What are they going to say? What's going to happen? You know. Don't be afraid. Who is there to harm you, really? Live for the good of others in and for the world. Not hiding out in an oyster shell, and peeking out, seeing if it's safe, and then scurrying to hurry up and go, let's go to church real quick. I uh, hope nobody comes in that has a bone in their nose. Or a tattoo. Ah. Well, maybe it's a Christian tattoo. That's okay. Let me see it. Is it in Hebrew? Oh my goodness, it must be something special. My older son got a tattoo on his back. Some, yeah, I always told my sons, you get a tattoo or an earring or you know, a nose ring or something like that, uh, help yourself, but only after you're out of my house. Because in my house, I'm the boss. And you know, I had all these weird ideas about being a, a father. None of them really that great. My son comes home with uh, a tattoo on his back down here in Arabic. See, he thought that was going to get him in touch with his roots, his Middle Eastern roots, by getting a tattoo in Arabic because, you know, our family's from the Middle East. And so he, I, I saw it. He got out of the shower and he's upstairs and he's walking. And I see the, you know, he goes by. What? What is that? You have a tattoo on your, are you out of your mind? I told you no. You know, we're 20 years old or something at the time. And he says, Dad, you, know, you, can, you told me when I'm independent, I could, yeah, but you're still living at home. You're not independent. Remember, we should have talked about that first. <laughs> and I said, what does it say? Because it's written, you know, from right to left, Arabic's like Hebrew. And my son says, well, it, it, says, it says struggle. I said, really? When was the last time you struggled? <laughs> You know, so we had this back and forth, you know. I said, how do you know it says struggle? And he says, well, that's what was in the book. I picked that word. I said, how do you know that that isn't the word, and here's the word I said in Arabic. How do you know that word is not jahash? Jahash means jackass. (laughs) How do you know what it says? You don't even know. You had them put letters on your back. You don't know if it says jackass or what. And so a few years ago, he texted me. He says, Dad, I'm thinking of having the, uh, the tattoos removed. I said, good, you know, think about that. So we went and saw him last year. Now he has a whole sleeve here. I said, you know what those things are, the sleeve? 
I have to forget about it. What are we afraid of? My son loves Jesus. He went to seminary. He was amazing. And he still is. And I love him, not in spite of his tattoos. I love him. Tattoos are meaningless. Do you understand? We get hung up on things that are meaningless. Who is there to harm you? Nobody. Nothing can touch you. Look at verse 14. He goes on. Listen, Peter is taking a stake and a hammer and he is driving that wooden stake into the heart of the vampire that lives in every one of us and sucks the life out of us. And he's putting it to death. And if you will trust what he's saying, it can really transform your life, which is what he's getting at. Let's go out and make a difference so people really see us giving our lives away and responding redemptively. Verse 14a, look at that. Even if, but even if someone does trouble you. He's saying, so, so you're out there in the world and you run into this crazy oddball who you just finished help paint their house and they come over and burn your house down in repayment. Total injustice. And Peter even goes further. He's... he's He's ramping up. He's saying, what even if they do that? Better to suffer for righteousness. Be the one who does what is right, even if it costs you. Even if it costs you. So what? Well, I want justice, and I want this, and I want that. We all want justice. You're not going to get justice in this world. But, you'll get it In the next world, the judge of all the earth will do right. Abraham asked him the question about Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you going to kill the righteous with the unrighteous? And God said, no. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? You've got to do right, Lord. You can't go and kill unjust. You know, he he was pleading. He was living redemptively. And he was asking God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. The quintessential evil. Not like El Paso. I mean, this is like Jerusalem. We're the holy place. We're talking about evil. And here is the father of the faithful redemptively responding to the threat of death for people that deserved it. Now, I hope that didn't go over your head. Praying redemptively for people who deserve it. I assume that every one of you that's in church today are here because you know that you're a sinner and that you deserve judgment. Yes or no? All right, if you know that, how are you going to escape Sodom unless God sends His angel to rescue you and take you out and make sure you don't look back and turn into a pillar of salt. So look at the second half of 14 quickly. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, he says. In your heart, honor Christ as holy. So he's setting this up so that in your heart, you're putting Christ in front of, and it's in your windshield, it's in your view, uh, on your screen, as you respond redemptively. He's not asking you to pay 
out of your account. See, he's not asking you to pay out of your pocket for the wrongs people are doing to you. He says, count. Christ is holy. He's setting up the the books and he's saying, look at this payment. Look at the deposit that was made for you by the Savior of the world. Consider Christ as holy. Look at that. And then as you're required in your life, and life can be rough and you've got to respond redemptively, it's going to cost you, you make your withdrawal from His account, not your own. Then you won't be begrudging. Then you won't be angry about it. Then you won't, you, you won't suffer any loss. Because He made the great deposit into that bank account. And He says, when you respond redemptively, do it with Christ as holy, as Lord. Take whatever you think it's going to cost you out of there. Leave your account out of it and make the payment. What is it going to cost you? Nothing. What's it going to cost you to forgive somebody? Nothing. What's it going to cost you to be trampled on, to, be, to have your, your life stripped away like my wife and her family in Cuba? Everything taken away in a matter of minutes. What is it going to cost you? Christians are the only people in the world that can say it costs me nothing. It cost him something. He was the one that turned into a pillar of salt, for goodness sakes. Don't be afraid. You see, listen to this. You may, people may harm your life, but they cannot have your life. They may harm your life, but they can't have it. Because you were bought with a price. Somebody paid for you. Lock, stock, and barrel. On your, on your worst day of your life, Jesus died for you, Romans 5 says. On the worst day. While we were yet sinners, God commended His love towards us in this by giving Himself for us. What are you going to pay? How will you pay? Where will you get the money? You don't have enough. Don't be afraid. Don't let evil people define you or us. And we have let that happen. History is replete with Christian community letting the world define them instead of them striking out. Now, if you read Christian history, you'll find that throughout history also there are multitudes of people that have done this, that have acted redemptively to the world around them. But they're not the sensational. And sometimes they don't make it into these stories. But if you're a student of Christian history, you'll know there are people out there like that. People like St. Augustine, St. Athanasius, Martin Luther. In our age, people like Martin Luther King or Wilbur, uh, Wilberforce who abolished slavery in England. I mean, you think about all the people that have done that. And generally, they're not part of the establishment of the Christian world. They're acting under the radar and doing what is right. And we're a small church, but you know what? We can do what is right, yes? We can do what is right, just our little body here, our little group here. We talk about it and we go to Presbytery. What can the PCA do to be different, to be more redemptive? 
And then wider than that, you hear people from all different denominations calling for this. Let's, let's change course and act redemptively. So what does it mean to live in and for the world? Let me do this quickly. Cultural isolation is not to be the route taken by the Christian community. This is from Karen Jobes again. It is to live its life, listen, openly in the midst of the unbelieving world and just as openly being prepared to explain why. Now there is something to think about. What is, he's saying, give an answer, be prepared, look at verse 15, be prepared, give an apologia, in Greek, an apology, an answer, for the reason for the hope that you have in you. In other words, trust the redemptive response. Trust that your answer, gentle and with respect to the other party, will actually do what He's promised it to do. That that Word of God will move out into the life of that person and massage their heart of stone and turn it into what? A heart of flesh. Soft. Malleable. Isn't that what happened to you? Didn't God come to you with your hard heart? Didn't He go in there and just quietly reach in and start taking that hardness and you know what happened? The hardness went in this way and the softness went out that way. Very transactional. <laughs> you can't read a page of your Bible where God is not paying for you, giving it up for you, doing it all for you. can't find a place where He doesn't do that. And it's not that He doesn't ask us for anything in return. You know what He asks? He asks really hard thing. Will you trust me? Will you? I don't know how... It can be tough sometimes to trust Him. But will you? Be prepared. What is our only hope in life and death? Catechism, uh, we read the second question from Heidelberg, but the first one is, what is your only hope in life and death? And the first thing is, Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then it goes on with this eloquent, beautiful, one of the greatest statements ever written in the English language. Our tone should be gentle, respectful, willing to take the heat, the abuse that somebody may dish out. And finally, the priority of the inner life. We've talked about this a lot. In fact, uh, uh, Courtney Doctor talked about it in her, in her uh, presentation, that character matters. Character more than giftedness is what you want to see in your life. You know, we have a lot of people, like she talked about these kings in Israel that were very talented. They were great warriors. They, they got politically, they got their countries in order, but they also started worshiping other gods. Their character was bad. They married strange women like Solomon, wisest man in the world. He takes Pharaoh's daughter to be his wife. That was a no-no. And then he married 700 or 300, sorry. He married 300 women and had 700 concubines. No wonder he lost his mind. No wonder the wisdom just went out of him. <laughs> like His head probably exploded. All right. The priority of the inner life. Look at 16. 
Have a good conscience so when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed. Better, 17, better to suffer for doing good than evil. That's obvious. If it's God's will, trust in God's works of providence. Trust His sovereignty. You know, most of us will say, I believe God is sovereign. We just tip our hat to that. And then we think everything is up to us. So if you're suffering, and you know you don't deserve it, then trust God's sovereignty. He's got you in a place. Maybe it's uncomfortable. I've been there. You've been there. We've all been in those places, in the, laying in those hospital beds or in a confrontation in our family or getting fired from work. You name it. We've all been in those places we're totally uncomfortable with. There we are. And we say, gosh, you know, is this God's will? He, it, if you're in a tough spot, it does not, listen, not necessarily mean that God is upset with you. You may be in a very terrible spot because He wants you there. Maybe it's because you're doing good. Maybe it's because you're suffering because you're doing righteousness. Imagine that. We, cut, we bifurcate our lives and we say, well, I should, if I'm living good, I should be blessed. And if I'm living bad, I must be something. So something bad happens, we immediately think, I must have done something. When all the time, maybe he's just setting it up for you to respond redemptively. At the cost of your own life, maybe. Didn't he tell you? Those that lose their lives will find it. You think he was kidding? He meant it. Because what can harm you? Do you see the logic of this? I hope you do. Well, where do you find the power of the power in your life? Peter just drops it in there like a bomb. Verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. What he's saying is the power for us to do this, folks, is in the bedrock of our Christian faith. It is in the resurrection from the dead. That we actually believe that, or or should. That our life was purchased at great infinite cost to this one. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous one. Not so you don't have to go through trouble, but so that you can go through it and redeem this world around you that is going straight to hell. And do it in the same way that He redeemed you. By coming in close, not standing back and say, holding his nose, saying, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to die for Chuck. Oh, yes, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. It's just so hard. Please, Father. He didn't say that, thankfully. No. We are called to redeem this world, to steward it, to make it better for everyone. When John Calvin went to Geneva, when the magistrates of the city called Calvin back, they called him back to fix the sewers and provide clean water. And John Calvin wrote, 
We want the Muslims and the Jews, there were lots of Muslims, lots of Jews in Geneva. We want the Catholics who are trying to kill us and we want the Protestants who are also sometimes trying to kill us like in our own churches. We want everybody to have clean water and a place to go to the bathroom. Everybody. Those that we are traditionally enemies and those that are our friends. Yes? We want every, we want to float everybody's boat. For God so loved the world, the cosmos. He gave his only son not to condemn the world, but that the world could believe through him. Will you do it? Will you trust him? I pray that you will. Father, um, please give us the courage to break the cycle of violence, to take, to take the hits. Maybe not every single time, but certainly there are, there are tons of times where we could act redemptively and completely change the face of the world around us. Please, Lord Jesus, help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.